0: going on everybody you are in the hacker valley studio yes, with your sir. hosts, ron and chris welcome back to the show <laughs> glad to be back again We have a special guest, finally got her on the podcast. We've been talking about doing podcasts together for a long, long time now. Yes, we have for a very long time. Seems like 10 years or something like that. (laughs) Susan P.D. Echo, you know, threat intelligence expert. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it expert. Uh, She has built several cyber threat intel capabilities and programs. She's great in the space of. Uh, Underrepresentation. She's doing a lot of outreach for for groups, and we're going to let her get to that in a little bit. And she's actually leading one of the B sides initiatives uh, as we speak. Oh, nice! Yeah, welcome. Yeah, welcome to the show. Stay busy. <laughs> yeah, she's one of the busiest people I know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, for all the folks that you know don't know you yet. What, how, uh, how have you gotten into the industry? What is your background and what are you doing right now?
1: Sure. I think in the beginning we used to always say, oh, we came up with these like, came up through these like non-traditional ways, but I think we're all seeing that there is really no traditional way to get right. into cyber. <laughs> Mine was actually, I think one of the more traditional ways that I've heard and it was through the military. I was 12 years active duty Air Force. I was radar maintenance of all things for the first like <laughs> seven years and I absolutely hated that. So I decided to do computer systems operations. I saw actually radars were moving towards computers. so I was, this is the way of the future. Let me, let me get on this bandwagon here. <laughs> and so that was back in 2003, I think. And from there, it was just um, help desk, network administration, information assurance, which I think is what, you know, has evolved into cyber now. And then I just really liked working more on the policy side of things, I realized. Computer security, everything. And I decided to get out in February of 2009. Did a very brief contract uh, for about six months in Iraq. And after I left that, I was like, I need a break. And I took 10 months off to travel. And uh, then my mom was finally like, you need to get a job. <laughs> I cannot have you just laying around and getting used to this lifestyle. <laughs> so I put my resume out there. And it was, it was totally random, but general dynamics of all people decided to call. And they were just like, hey, we think you'd be perfect for this job. And we can't tell you what it is, but we think you'd be great for it. And I was like, okay, great. So <laughs> show up there on the first day, move across country to... Um, Linthicum Heights, (laughs) Maryland. Maryland. (laughs) Maryland. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I I get there the first day, they are like, we want you to be a cyber threat intelligence analyst. And I'm like, why? (laughs) 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 I've never done cyber, it was always IT, and then I've never been an analyst, and I was never in intelligence, and it ended up being the best job that I had, and I learned so much there. And I mean, it's a true testament to DC3, because a lot of the people I worked with are still there, and they've actually just moved up in the ranks, and it's just kind of an incredible program there. You know about DC3. So loved, loved working there. Decided to go to Mandiant for about two and a half years after that. Left Mandiant about eight months after the merger and or the acquisition and then um, went back to the Air Force. Did a little bit of training and education there for the Inspector General. Left there, went to Raytheon and that's where I started building programs. So we did one for the um, UAE uh, government and then left there. Uh, That was like a big job. Um, like, interview basically being there for the <laughs> six months that I was there. Went on to Raytheon Foreground, which is now absorbed into Raytheon. So it's just Raytheon. And um, you know that too. Yes, <laughs> I think we realized yeah, we had very parallel. Our paril- past is very parallel. It's very <laughs> parallel. Um, so it was Raytheon Foreground for a little bit. And I worked on the uh, US Postal Service contract there. And then I left that, went over to the US courts. I was the first threat intelligence, judicial threat intelligence analyst hired. And uh, built a program out there with our friend, Mike, and then left there, went to Booz Allen, where I met Chris. And while I was there, I worked with big email and telecommunications, finance, different industries, which I really loved seeing the different environments. And my last one was a big oil and gas, and I just truly enjoyed that environment and the people I met there. I decided to leave it in August of this year, and I've just been kind of freelancing, as people have put a spin on it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was mainly just uh, to kind of do the speaking circuit for a little bit, did a couple of talks during the fall. I ran B-Side Sacramento, which you guys mentioned, which was our first year, and it was a great success. So... Um, it like
0: sold out like super quick. It
1: really did. We sold out in less than twenty four hours. That's wow. insane. We were super excited, and it was just a, a testament to how uh, much it was needed in the area and stuff. So we were really excited. Was that though. connected
0: to another conference, or was it nope. was a standalone? It was standalone. Okay.
1: Okay. One day, one track. Wow. We had about ten speakers, um, mm-hmm. one keynote, and it was just a, a great day. Uh, we had a fantastic time. It was at Hacker Lab which couldn't have found a more perfect location. Unfortunately, <laughs> we've outgrown it. Uh, um, we wish we could have stayed there, but there was just such a demand for, for people asking to be able to come in. So we are like, you know what, we'll just increase the venue next year so we don't have to say no to anybody. Right. I think that was the worst part of it, is having to tell people, sorry, yeah. you can't come. Yeah. We're it. But we didn't want the fire chief being called, either. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so no, don't want that to happen. <laughs> well, I was like, let's, <laughs> let's not do that this year. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it sounds like your full time now is really just focusing on B-sides and speaking. Is is that right?
1: Right now, yes. I mean, honestly, what I do full-time is I went back to the reserves just to kind of – I am still an Air Force reservist. I had done 12 years, so it was why, – why would I throw that away? Right, uh, right. So I was like, let me finish out the last eight years. I've done six years, so I'm at 18 – finished. I'm working on my 19th year right now. So it was kind of like as soon as B-Sides was done, I went right into the speaking circuit. Speaking circuit was done. I'm doing the CMU CISO program, which we talked Mm -hmm. about as well. So taking the CISO certification out of Carnegie Mellon, which has been a great program to be a part of. And then um, right into reserve duty. So everybody calls me the busiest unemployed person ever. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like
0: it. You know, I think that's a good good place to start. One thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, in threat intelligence, I feel like we sort of have an advantage in the job field. And I think that's because (laughs) we can apply to so many functions within the cybersecurity apparatus. And it almost seems like you can go from leading a really efficient threat intel program to being a CISO. Yeah. Like, do you would you agree with that?
1: I, I would say so because we touch so many different aspects within the SOC. I mean, like, I've worked with vulnerability management, the insider threat. I mean, just the normal SOC analysts, the tier one all the way up to, you know, tier three or four or whatever. So I think one thing I said during the CISO program that I noticed, and, and it's not a, a slam on academia, but, like, I just noticed everybody there was coming from this academic background and then they just move into these management positions and then they move up to being a CISO and i'm like how many of you actually have stepped foot in a sock like how many of you right. and I, I think i asked josh that question one time and he was like <laughs> i was like if if you um sat down with your boss would he know what your name is and what you do and he was like i could walk up to him on the street and punch him in the face and he wouldn't know who i was <laughs> and i was like that's so bad <laughs> like i was like your boss should know who you are and right. like like that you work for him and, and right. so, like what you do what's your role in everything so I think one of the uh, tropes that's perpetuated as well in the program that I, I don't necessarily agree with is Sizzles never sleep, and that's why they hit mm-hmm. burnout in 18 months. Right. I really believe if you build a, a great program and the bosses that I've seen do really, really great, sock management and, and you yeah. know, the advanced teams and stuff, it's always because they're taking care of their people, and the people will want to take care of them in turn. Yeah, right. So having a really good deputy there, everything like that. So. Yeah.
2: What, what do you think of the uh, kind of journey and uh, gaining some insights being a CISO so far uh, is that uh, something that you're interested in going yeah, forward? it's really
1: funny I think a lot of us in the program are like we never want to be a CISO. <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't ever want to do this <laughs> it's a lot of pressure it really is I mean like they put us up for a mock board and I was went into it confident I mean here I've done all these speaking gigs I'm like I have no problem speaking in front of a crowd four people no big deal I met boards in the military no problem right. whatsoever And I go up and meet these four, like they're all our advisors and instructors and it was this mock board and go up and present and my slides are tight and everything. I was just super, super excited for this and went up with my group and they tore me to shreds. Like Ooh. It was so bad. We had 15 <laughs> minutes to present five slides and we t- took up the first 10 minutes on just my part, which was the history of the breach, the intrusion analysis and, and what was taken right. for our particular breach. And it was just so sad how, how quickly they tore me apart. And so I was like, Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe this isn't <laughs> my uh, specialty here. So, but I mean, I think they do it. It's kind of almost like they even said it afterwards because everything we learned later on during the week, it was all the stuff that we should, have known going into a mock board and I'm like why wouldn't you teach this they're like it's a method to our madness and mm. you know we want you to feel what it's like to <laughs> right. be in front of a board and necessarily like just almost fail right and then yeah I mean it's a, it's a form of hazing almost yeah, it sounds like the military <laughs> yeah <laughs> So we have to do an hour long as our our end capstone type of program. We do an hour long presentation in front of the board. So God help us. (laughs) Good luck. Wow. That's going to be a good one. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Being in the program, have you gleaned anything from a threat intelligence standpoint? Have you like have a newfound respect for your own trade craft.
1: Actually, I think what I realized is I have a bias for threat intelligence because I'm like, why aren't you looking, because that was the reason why we spent 10 minutes on the intrusion of the analysis and um, like the breach itself and, and what was taken because that's all the stuff that, that's the story that we tell in right, threat right. intelligence. And they were more like, what are you gonna do about it? How much of our money are you gonna spend? Like that, it's like they're, they're very much looking at it from the risk perspective, the estimated budget perspective, like things that you just do not ever really consider when you're, I don't want to say like, but you're just not on that sea level. Mm. And so it's, it's very eye-opening in that sense because I do have a bias for like <laughs> it's true my yeah. heart. <laughs> <Me too. laughs> so, I was like I have to I have to kind of negate that, but I am and it was one of the things like I, I noticed I'm one of the more technical people, which I was really surprised at because I'm not <laughs> that technical. I don't reverse engineer or anything right. and I'm not a programmer, but it was just again seeing that difference coming from an academia background versus actually like working in the sock and coming up that way.
2: Right. Did you also see uh, more individuals with a business background in the in the program also and also like kind of transitioning into becoming CISOs and other executive members?
1: I think that there's actually just like a fair split in the program from what I've seen where I mean some people I'm not saying I'm the only person who's ever come up through the SOC there are people who have worked in SOCs before but a lot of it was just the academic base coming up from management working in a cyber space and then there was the individuals who kind of it's just all Different areas. I I, there was one that works in a supermarket. Oh wow! (laughs) Just super random. (laughs) That's Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There was a a person from the railroad. We have different countries there, so I mean, like just the international perspective of it. Wow. um, that's so super cool. yeah i mean I, I one of your colleagues is in the program too yeah. and um like it's just it's it's so amazing just the diverse backgrounds i mean we have somebody who a lot of financial backgrounds we have that a lot of people in the european space who created their own companies which is really really cool to be able to tap in and and just pick their brains it's just kind of incredible how different things are kind of done over there
0: that's, that's awesome yeah. awesome program
2: we were just talking about like they're not being a well-defined path and it sounds like you know if, if from looking at a threat intelligence perspective and just like the background that you have like you might actually have some good insights on how to create a path from being a practitioner to ultimately kind of looking at being a CISO
1: yeah I think coming from I I, I want to say that that's it makes you well more well-rounded right like every single job and I think we've talked about this before where every time we leave a job it's kind of like okay what what did I take away from that and so like of course my first jobs were teaching me how to be an analyst but then even when I was at Mandiant for two and a half years I worked on the operations side of things so I got to see things like billing and actually working with clients and just the education side of things which then translated into my work at the military Mm -hmm. so having to plan like trainings and developing curriculum and stuff like that and then I mean just like every single job you take a different aspect from it and I just it's kind of incredible to have that breadth of like knowledge to go into being a sea level because like you said you come in with a little bit of that bias and then then all of a sudden you have to think about things like risk and budgets (laughs) and you're like oh things i've never had to consider before so it is kind of nice to take all of that with you and just be like but wait this is this is what it feels like to be at the tier one level you know to be entry level and (laughs) yeah
0: what about you ron do you have a bias for threat intel
2: (laughs) i i definitely do i have a bias for security so i always look at really all situations when especially work related i'm like how does security apply to it or how can i apply security and also i have a bit of a developer background too so i'm always looking at how can I automate part of this workflow? So yep. if, if I am working with directors or CISOs, I'm often asking like questions about automation. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, well, maybe you could save more money if you're automating more parts of the process. So very biased, especially when it comes to threat intelligence automation. Like, all yep. right, we could look at all the data and try to curate and assess feeds, but how do we automate part of that process to Uh, quickly assess the feeds more or get the determination back from this feed saying this piece of data is bad or interesting
0: yeah
1: do you um start with automation right away or do you look at it from a more manual perspective and then see how we can automate it to make it better and faster
2: that's a good question i look at i look at the analysis first so how do do you one do you know how to take a piece of information and do more things with it like do you know how to enrich it do you know how to format it and if you do have the insights on that, then immediately, like, my mind is thinking, all right, well, we know how we need to be processing this data. How do we automate it? Yeah.
1: So um, one of the people that I was uh, working with, the big email um, provider, they wanted – the their big thing when we walked into there during the client meetings was – we want automation. We want automation and orchestration. We want it to be just super fast. And I'm like, okay, right. but what do you have? <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> like, you need to yeah. baseline. It, yeah, let, let's stand, step <laughs> right. back a little bit. You know, see what we have first. You know, like what we actually want to do with it. And I'm, and I wasn't saying that we had to do that for like a year or something like that. I just really wanted to make sure that we were looking at it um, from that baseline first, and then like, okay, yes, how can we automate this? Like, how right. can we make this faster? Kind of.
2: I've worked with a few socks that have bought the automation before buying the kind of uh platform the like the integration the integration right? before buying yeah. the integrations they right. don't have any integrations but they bought they a great automation engine so oh, you wait till we get some <laughs> solutions we we'll yeah. connect them all together we have no security controls but right. we have the piece that's going to automate right. it all exactly
0: <laughs> that's insane uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up, because I, I feel we are uh, going to more the practitioner route now. But before we sort of leave off with the, the CISO thing, I, I read an article that said that CISOs are now going to be considered for CEO positions because there's so much that hinges on cybersecurity for an organization. Is that something you guys think is going to happen? Do you think that, you know, there, there is going to be promotions from CISO to CEO because they just know so much about the ins and outs of the company? that it just makes sense for that that transition.
1: That's the first time that I've heard that. It sounds like it would be a, a good approach. I know right now um, they were talking in the program about how you're not actually, even though y- you are a chief, like you are a C-level, it seems, you're not actually sitting at the table yet, right? You're still answering to the CSO, CIO, CFO, um, all CEO, everybody. Right. And you're usually falling under one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, CIO makes the most sense. What I have heard is more this uh, uh, CISO or CIO are going to merge together. But, I mean, that is an interesting approach because you do know, I mean, the ins and outs of the company and all, right. the operations. Right. So I don't, I don't know if you have a take on that, but that's the first time I've heard it. That would be interesting.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, entire companies can be folded due to a cyber event. And so that is a super huge responsibility for somebody in a company. And so if you're going to take that to the next level, I think that's the only thing you can can kind of move to. Unless you got a financial degree and you go CFO. <laughs>
2: I, I'm definitely seeing some shift in cybersecurity companies, like the CISO becoming a CEO at a cybersecurity company, especially, mm-hmm. and even taking their, their talent elsewhere and doing their own thing, a CISO becoming a CEO somewhere. I, I find that pretty pretty common. I'm interested to see if, the, if that shift does happen, mm-hmm. if we do see CISOs becoming CEOs at Fortune 500s. That, oh, would be that would be interesting. a crazy challenge, but That'd maybe be maybe being a CISO at a Fortune 500, you do get the insights and also be a part of the board meetings, but, but maybe not, because I'm sure the board meetings there are right. just completely different.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think we're far away. I bet you in 2020, we're going to see a, a CISO get promoted to CEO. Calling it now. <laughs> so, so is that is that your your That's prediction? A prediction. That's my exactly. prediction. <laughs> it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen in twenty twenty. Watch,
2: you'll see. I'm, I'm gonna come like back to, next December. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do this. Like, all right, Chris, the yeah. clock is winding down.
0: <laughs> what about on the the practitioner side? So it seems like in the beginning we sort of had these like. Three buckets for threat intelligence. We had strategic, so those are the people doing, you know, enterprise risk, they're talking to the board, they're talking to the C-suites. We had operational, those are people that are tracking APTs, you know, they're doing briefings, things like that. And then you have your tactical slash technical, and those are the people that are doing like IR. But now it's getting so wide because you're having a blend of people that are supporting like security analysts, and then you have researchers that are actually going deep. And so you have this broad versus deep. Do you guys see an even more splintering of threat intelligence like right now?
1: I do, actually. When I moved over to the U.S. courts, I thought it was um, interesting that some of the the things, like you said, we had traditionally done strategic, operational, tactical. A lot of the operational and tactical side of things, one, the automation came in because we were using like tools like Splunk or something like that to build the dashboards and everything like that. But then a lot of our stuff was getting handed off to the threat hunt team or to um, just the other internal advanced teams outside of the SOC. And I was just super surprised at that because I was like, oh, no, that's a threat. Intel function like we should be doing that and they were like mm. no you know there's more to it and stuff because i mean threat hunt is is about building those hypotheses and right. you know the threat modeling and everything like that so i do see that there is a, a, a bit of a splintering and i'm kind of curious because i think we finally have created in the cti world like this understanding like this is this is what a cti program should look like yep. and now it's starting to evolve again and yep. so it's going to be really interesting um to see and again that's going into different environments like i said when i was with those, like, it was nice to see, like, all the different financial or email or oil, big oil and gas, whatever it is, how each one took a different take to building out their programs. It's what works for your environment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying, uh, kind of introducing more technologies, automation, and maybe even more capabilities for threat intelligence. I think that the architecture is really important. So how do, how is my service threat intelligence going to feed into all of these organizations or units like the SOC, like the threat hunting team, how does my, one, my, my information feed to them, but how do I get their curated kind of analysis back mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feed that back into my program? So I think the one of the, the shortcomings that I see often is the architecture not allowing for uh, multiple methods of data flowing from one source to another and vice versa. So...
1: And I think that's why I was asking you that question before, because it's kind of like developing all those processes and then seeing how, okay, how can we automate this now? And like, what gap are we missing in our tool set to right. try to make that happen? But I think that there's a lot, what I've noticed with the programs that I've, I've been a part of, the education side of it, because you can have like all the tools, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we've seen all, often is you can have all the tools, but then you're like, oh, well, this doesn't do anything for me. Well, well you weren't using all of its capabilities. You weren't using it to its fullest potential. Right. And so- you know, the education of your analyst being able to know, like, hey, I need to use it like this to in order to see what vulnerability management responded with or what threat hunt responded with, and right, you know, be able to. I think that there's both sides of it that need to happen
2: there. And I think, like, you, you say that you said it best right now <coughs> is we're not using the tools that they to their capabilities. Uh, there's a lot of tools that do some great things, mm-hmm. but to one, make it do those great things is very difficult, and then two, I think to interface with the tools is pretty difficult. Like, all right, I have this tool here. Maybe it's Splunk. Maybe it's some other sim. And then I have this tool that's going to do enrichment. I need to know how to use those tools mm-hmm. for one. And then also to interface with all the other features that might not be so obvious with when it comes to those
0: tools too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great points all around. You do a bit of mentoring, right? Absolutely. And so when you're mentoring people, do, they, do you ever get people that don't exactly know which function they want to go into? Absolutely. And, and All you, the time. <laughs> you, and, and what do you usually tell those people? It,
1: it's kind of the same as how it was in my career. Like, even though I was put on this uh, trajectory of threat intelligence, I still got to experience the education or the operation side of things. I try to tell them it's nice, especially if they're college students, you know, dabble in everything a little bit. I knew right off the bat that I wasn't a programmer. Like, I was like, I <laughs> knew that that was not my four So <laughs> I was like, let me move away from this and see, see where my specialties can be used. And so it, it's just kind of, I think you kind of innately know. And so It's kind of nice to try things out. But then also it gives you that, again, that experience of, okay, this is what they have to go through in order to make that work sort of thing, or this is what they have to go through in their daily or whatever. It just just increases... <clears throat> your knowledge in that, that kind of a space so you can have a little bit more empathy and compassion when you're working with people but no I do I always tell them to try out different things see what sticks it's funny I don't know if they just because again my bias is coming through but like they was like oh I think the threat intelligence is great and I'm like okay awesome but I was like you really should try some of the other things but no it's my number one advice so let's try something out
0: yeah, one thing I, I've always told people, uh, specifically for a threat intelligence, is I think it's the easiest for people to get into, but the, one of the hardest things to master. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, and, and it goes back to what we were just saying about the whole tool set sort of thing. Like, you can think like, oh, okay, this is a great thing, so I can just tell stories and, you know, do a little bit of hunting and try to put these things together. But I think once you really get into the nitty gritty of it, you're just kind of like, oh, my gosh, there is a lot to this. <laughs> and yeah, Like, right. you really need to. And, and also, it's the one place where you really do not want to be wrong, because it just goes to your credibility and reputation and everything like that. And I was like, well, I just don't know what they're talking about. Like, I don't need to listen to them. Right. And so it's very um, easy to kind of be the shining star. But, like, I mean, you do that one bad and it's just all of a sudden you're shutting off, you know, something on your network that you shouldn't and, right. like, <laughs> yeah.
2: So I have a pretty interesting question about threat intelligence uh, for you, Susan. Uh, years ago, Chris mentioned something to me that I thought was pretty outrageous at the time. Uh, he said that. Oh my God! What are you about to say? He said, <laughs> he said that we need to hire individuals that can curate data sources like feeds and whatnot. And I had my opinion on it at the time, which has changed. But I would love to hear your opinion on data curation when it comes to like threat intelligence feeds. D- is that something that you think is lacking? Do we need to have more expertise and and talent there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that just comes along. It, it, there's also, you know, you do the proof of concept for your tooling to see what works best in your environment and what fits your needs and like what what uh, fits your requirements. But I think the same thing goes for for um, any of the feeds or data that you have coming in. I mean, you have your internal sources, right? And I, I see so often that everybody just thinks it's all about the feeds and let's get everything in. One of the places I was at, there's the DHS AIS feed. I think we might've talked about this too. And it's just like a dump of of IOCs and it's just I was like what's the context around it like how often was this domain seen where was it seen when was it last seen? you know that kind of stuff and if you don't have that context around it then like what what good is it to me sort of thing but I when you're doing that proof of concept you have to know across your industry like what's what's the most applicable and then inside your actual business like what is going to bring you the most benefit and I think that that comes along with like not only that proof of concept but just kind of uh, I hate to say metrics they can't yeah. and that's one of the things that you do right yeah. like you uh, like you need to have a certain like okay we, we got this one feed and like did it actually help us prevent anything like what did we actually use that for and that's kind of like but you have to know what you're doing with it because i mean it could be one of those things like you have it and you just weren't using it but then it's like oh this wasn't giving us any value well like did you actually use it the correct way right so it's just a whole bunch of different aspects to it <laughs> but i uh, just to speak to that point when you were asking the question the first thing i thought of was again biases because um, i've done a talk on this but it goes into hiring bias because you need to have that that diversity of thought within your team because like we're very much alike and so if we're like always in sync and like you know never like you know just kind of um playing devil's advocate with each other like it's just all of a sudden you get that like groupthink sync almost happening and it's kind of like then you might be actually like missing out on something right Right. so it's kind of nice having those diversities within the team just people and, and thought and everything different cultural backgrounds generational whatever it is, uh, it really helps curate different feeds for your company. It's nice.
0: I think the the answer to that question has sort of morphed over time where there was a, a big emphasis on indicators. What I find now like for atomic indicators, they're really good for assisting investigations. But now we're getting to a point where feeds aren't just atomic indicators anymore. Now we're looking at behaviors. Now we're looking at these you know uh miter attack kill chains like you know we're looking at how the attack actually happens like what does this bad look like on the network not just you know the ip or the url or the domain or anything like that and so i think back then that's kind of all we had to go on but now we're getting these frameworks where we can actually start looking at behavior in a repeatable way and that's what i think is what we're focused on from a data curation standpoint today
2: yeah and just to kind of give you an insight as to how I answered back then, I I said, no, there's no way that, uh, you know, someone should be kind of full-time curating feeds. But then I actually, I took a job where my, one of my uh, main primary duties was to curate threat intel. And it was too much for even one person. Oh, oh yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Too much. Lot. Even like to find one good feed was like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of alert types, there's a lot of data sources, and I can't say whether or not this feed is truly good or bad unless I'm working with the vendor on a daily basis to kind of apply the data to only specific sets of information. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. There are a lot of good feeds out there, but where I get the best tippers is those communities of interest. Exactly. Right. You know, those... People that are in your vertical, you know, you you talk with them on a daily basis. You're like, hey, this is what I'm seeing. Are you seeing this also? When to put this past you? I think that's where you get a lot of the bang for the buck is your network, your personal network that you build as a threat intelligence analyst. And
1: I think in the beginning, because I mean, especially being at DC3, we would get all of the agencies together in the room, and then nobody would want to talk to each other. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're just kind of like, okay, well, we were on the phone, and you said this, or whatever. I mean, like, I think as time has gone on, I mean, because that was back in, what, 2009, 2010? Mm -hmm. So as time has gone on, everybody really did realize that, like, it is the community that you have. And, I mean, I always did get more done by just, like, you know, the phone calls and, you know, the interactions and stuff like that versus trying to get everybody in a room to talk to each other. (laughs) (laughs) So it was like pulling teeth.
0: Yeah, now I'm in, like, a million slacks. I have, like, like, 20 slacks.
2: I still see that in person, though, with, with companies, organizations, like, especially at user groups and whatnot. Like, you get all the organizations in a room. But when they're there in person it's like the, the sharing kind of stops, stops. yeah yeah
1: <laughs> and i think that's one of the the good things that the ISAC the ISACs have done is is kind of given people that venue of like okay let's all share and we're all in like the restaurant restaurant and hospitality or whatever it is uh, you know finance everything like it's just kind of nice for so everybody to have that kind of place to share their information
0: right outstanding so what do you have going on these days like what's what's on the horizon
1: um so submitting more CFPs like I'm trying to be more um cautious about it because I realized when I do submit one there's the chance of it actually getting accepted (laughs) and I don't like to say no then so I was like I literally had like eight speaking engagements in the fall and I was like this was just too overwhelming like it's kind of a good thing that I wasn't working because then I could just kind of go and and take care of that so now it's just kind of like okay what what con do I really want to be at and and do I want to speak at it so Mm -hmm. um just Submitted to Schmoo. I actually missed um, submitting to First CTI in um, Zurich, oh, and I was darn. like, "I got it. this." Is this is a, a PSA for everybody? Pay attention to the time because it right. was um, midnight UTC, oh. not just like midnight in general for the 29th ninth. That is a good
0: tip. <laughs>
1: yeah, because that was four p.m. in California, oh, <laughs> so wow. I was like, "Oh man, missed that one." Yeah, just submitting CFPs now. Trying to do like one a month, I think, just to kind of stay um, on top of things. We're working on. Looking for a venue for B sides next year. Um, we want to make sure we have that in place by B sides SF, mm-hmm. which I'll probably see you guys at again this year. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. So either. and that was actually one of the other CFPS that I missed <laughs> submitting mm. to, but it's okay. I'll still be there. But we want to we want to make sure we announce then like hey date and time, and we want to expand it to two days this year. So we're definitely bringing on a team of people to help us because me Doug and Courtney doing it this year it was just it was a lot. Oh, <laughs> I bet. Jeez. So like I said, finishing out my reserve time it's just. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and then it's how how can people stay up to date with what you have going on? All the stuff with B sides, like
1: Yeah, Twitter is the best. It's V 33 NA. Um so V is in Victor three three NA. Uh Twitter is always the best way that I usually especially with the cyber world, I kind of keep things separate. Sometimes LinkedIn as well. And
0: you gotta get on the LinkedIn train. I, I I am on LinkedIn. <laughs> I mean I,
1: I, I think I'm up to I don't know, like forty five hundred people now. Yes, yeah. I mean I'm not as popular as you are where you gained like three thousand followers. <laughs> <laughs> in like one day or something I mean, I, I'm not on your level but <laughs> at least I, I have a, a good network there yeah. we didn't I, surprisingly for b-sides we only put it out on Twitter we never even got to the other social medias to oh, like wow. say like wow. like LinkedIn or Facebook or anything like that like hey there's events happening it was literally like just Twitter and it, it went so fast um, are you just
0: going to double the size of the venue or I
1: mean we're hoping for a capacity of 250 to 300 mm-hmm. and then that way we can like work it backwards to see actually how many volunteers we need the sponsor spaces the speaker spaces, that kind of stuff and then we'll kind of work back and that's how we did it this last time and that's why there was only like 75 tickets for sale because once we included everybody in that 125 number all of a sudden ah. we had like 50 extra people showing up we were like oh wait and so 75 tickets went like that mm. we were at the beginning when we were planning it we we're like if 50 people show up we'll be super happy <laughs> like <laughs> that's all we were asking for and then yeah. we we're like oh my gosh 24 wow. hours so yeah we're hoping to double in capacity if not more this year
2: awesome so, yes let us know how we could help in any way absolutely yeah absolutely. Yeah.
1: I, yeah. yeah. we'll do a, a special actually you know what you guys should do a, a live podcast at the event that would be pretty amazing should Done. talk it over with yeah. my my yeah. people but yeah I think that would yeah. be kind of amazing let's set it up let's do yeah. it <laughs>
0: Susan thank you so much for hopping on driving down here just to chat with us can't wait to get this out to the folks out there we really appreciate you being down here yeah, yeah thanks you guys pleasure
2: Yeah.
0: Awesome. and that's a wrap we'll see everybody next time <laughs>